Uh, welcome to those joining us online today. We're so excited. You know, we have over 100 people every week that tune in and watch online with us. And so we're just really glad to have you as part of our church family, wherever you are uh, today. Uh, I want to ask you this question. When was the last time that you came up short? Anyone? The last time you came up short. Coming up short, you know, that's an idiom we use in our English language. It really means to run out of supply before you finish the task, you know, or, or maybe you run out of time or narrowly miss a goal or objective you have. So, you know, when was the last time you came up short? Maybe you were doing some baking and you just realized that uh, you were out of eggs or out of butter and you had to go to the neighbor and get some ingredients. Uh, maybe you're doing home renovation. Where's all the home renovation people, contractors? Maybe you do that for a living. How many know it's always like one more board, one more tile, right? Just one more little bit of paint that you can try to squeeze out of the brush. There's always something more that you need than you have. Oh, this is the worst one is when you're at the store and you tap your debit card and it says insufficient funds. How many know, oh, that, that's a painful one right there, right? When you come up short. Uh, or maybe you've been playing a sport or you've been cheering on your team and you're on the edge of your seat as the clock's winding down and you're just hoping to pull out the victory and at the end of the game, you just come up short, right? It's just the worst feeling. It's like, how many would rather lose like by a blowout than to like just narrowly miss coming up short? couple, uh, a little while ago, uh, we were out for dinner one evening, and uh, I was parking the car. I let everyone off at the restaurant, and I had pulled into the parking lot, and I uh, went to pay at the, at the meter for parking. It was, it was one of the big lots with, like, the, the machine in the middle of the lot, and so I rarely ever have cash on me. Uh, all I had was uh, two toonies, and so it was $2 an hour for parking, so I put $4 in the meter. That's all the money I had, and then I realized that after six, it's not paid hour anymore. It's paid by one fee. It's $6 for the whole evening. And I'd already put my $4 in. I had nothing left. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'll just, I'll just like get a refund. I'll just press the, and then I realized it says right on the machine, no refunds. So I'm looking at this machine. They've already taken my $4. I have nothing left to put in it. I, I would pay, you know, with the credit card if I could. But, but they, the injustice inside of me is like, they've already taken my money, right? And they're not going to give it back. And so I kind of got indignant. How do you know that things just snowball? You know, when you get a little flustered, you get a little indignant. I'm like, you know what? They owe me. And so, you know what? I'm not paying anything else. I've already paid $4, and I just left. I went in the restaurant and said, forget that. I've already, if I get a ticket, I'll just argue that I paid $4, and you owe me money. You know, that, that, was my, that was my train of thought. And so we went, and we enjoyed a nice meal together. And then I got out to my car afterwards, and I had a ticket for not paying. It was a $35 ticket. And I thought, oh, and I told Holly what had happened and she said, you idiot. You should have just come and asked me for another $2. <laughs> and I thought, How many know it's awful to come up short in these moments? You know, we can all relate to coming up short, whether it's baking ingredients or home uh, improvement supplies or, you know, points in a game. But sometimes we can relate to that sense on a deeper plane, can't we? Those more meaningful plane. We, we think about those sentiments that keep us lying awake at night. You know, am I coming up short? How many can relate to this idea uh, uh, of being a parent? 
You know, am I really coming up short as a parent? Am I being all that I could be or want to be? Am I the spouse I want to be? You know, maybe you're a student, you've been applying yourself diligently, and you're like, I feel like I'm just coming up short uh, in my aspirations and goals. Maybe you're an entrepreneur launching a business, or maybe you have friends that you're just walking through life, and you're sometimes finding yourself thinking, am I coming up short in being who I wanted to be? You know, often those sentiments, you know, they're really unwarranted sometimes. You know, often we're being overly critical, you know, we're being hard on ourselves. I know we've even coined the, uh, coined the term mom guilt, you know, that sense of like, am I the parent, am I the person, the spouse that I want to be? And, uh, and sometimes those are honest reflections. Like sometimes we do miss our goals and expectations we set up for ourselves, but, but oftentimes, you know, it might be a little bit overly critical. And sometimes these thoughts can shift into our Christian lives too, don't they? You know, there's times where we have failed to keep the promises and commitments we've made to the Lord. You know, there are situations where maybe we haven't responded in the most Christ-like way, you know, and we think, man, I've fallen short, I've come up short. Maybe there's moments where we've struggled with doubts or fears, or maybe there's opportunities where we felt the Holy Spirit leading us and prompting us to take a step of faith, and for whatever reason we didn't. So, like, this one, I just, you know, I have to say, just, just kind of nod your head if you kind of know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, sometimes I come up short, you know, in my Christian life. Well, this morning I want us to look at one of the parables of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 17, if you want to turn there this morning. And uh, parables have often been called, you know, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And, and really, they're a communication tool that Jesus used uh, to tell a story, to, to have a hook, to draw in his listeners, uh, to help them understand uh, a spiritual principle, but, but parables are much more than just an attention getter. Parables are meant to elicit in us this sense of, as we listen to Jesus' story, that I see myself in his story. Uh, I see myself in the story that Jesus is telling. Uh, Jesus, these aren't just stories that Jesus told about people or that he told to people hundreds of years ago or, or he, it weren't just stories that other people needed to hear. Jesus wants everyone of all time to hear these stories and say, I see myself in the story that Jesus is telling. These are my struggles, my sins. These are my triumphs and victories, some of the stories. These are my hurts. These are my hopes. So Luke 17, and we're going to look at one of Jesus' shortest parables. And uh, it's a parable that Jesus tells in response to his disciples' fear that they're going to come up short in their spiritual life. And so they come to Jesus, and this is the interaction that he has with his disciples. Now this a short little parable is wedged between a couple other curious statements. And so I want to look at this this morning. Luke 17, verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. I would love to see this morning how to increase your faith. Anyone you want to increase your faith this morning? That's an admirable request, isn't it? If there's anything as a follower of Jesus we could use more of, it's more faith. And so this is a great request, but, but here's some context. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken on a new job or a new hobby. If you ever taken a new, and you did some, you know, some initial onboarding, maybe you did like, some orientation and some preliminary training, uh, you know, and then you started the job and you realized that the job was much 
more involved and much more difficult than you anticipated. You ever had that experience? You know, maybe, uh, maybe you did a course where you had to like, do some classwork. You spent two days in the classroom and then you had to go to the field and like, you know, put it into practice, right? And, and you get there and you realize that the reality is harder than what you thought it would be. You come face to face with some of the obstacles and challenges of the actual task at hand, right? You start the day excited and you just kind of get involved and you're like, wow, this is a lot bigger. What have I gotten myself into? Anyone ever have a what have I gotten myself into experience, right? Anyone ever promoted yourself on your resume? You're like, I look really good on paper, right? And then you got the job and you're like, what have I gotten myself into, right? What have I got myself into? That's the kind of moment for the disciples. Up to this point of Jesus' ministry, they've kind of been on this orientation. Jesus has been training them and grooming them uh, for when he would no longer be with them. That he's been training them for when they would be leading and ministering to the people uh, on behalf of God, spreading the good news on Jesus' behalf. And so, you know, you ever watch the movie and it kind of starts off, you know, at a certain place of the story and then it kind of rewinds and talks about how did we get to this place? So we have the disciples, verse 5, Jesus, show us how to increase our faith. Well, let's go back to verse 1 and find out how we got there. Luke 17, verse 1. One day Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. Seems kind of like, well, how do we get from there to here, right? <laughs> like, and these disciples are hearing Jesus talk about this responsibility. It's a little bit of pressure right here. You know, juxtaposed against this conversation is one they've constantly been hearing Jesus have with the religious leaders and Pharisees, kind of about the same thing. You know, Jesus' public criticism of the religious leaders left nothing to the imagination. In Matthew 23, 13, this is what he says clearly. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, for your hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in, in people's faces. You won't go in yourself and you don't let others enter either. And so these disciples are, are hearing Jesus say, watch out for how you lead, how you conduct yourself, because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of stake as a leader in the kingdom of God. Now caring for little ones, they understood, wasn't just limited to like children's ministry. They understood that that meant to those that are young in their faith and even those who are outside of the faith at this time. And so Jesus is cautioning them about how their actions impact others and how they could trip them up on their spiritual journey. He's saying, watch out so that you don't do that because that's not what you want to happen as a leader in the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't done yet. Because he also cautioned them, not just about how their actions uh, impact others, but how others' actions influence their attitudes. Verse 3 says this, So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there's repentance, forgive. But even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each, turn, and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Notice who Jesus says we are supposed to keep our eyes on. Who does he say? Watch yourselves. 
How many know that when we've been hurt or betrayed or, uh, you know, when we are in that place of, of longing for, you know, a repentance, right? Our eyes are not usually on ourselves. Our eyes are on other people, right? Right? I've got my eyes on you, right? I don't want to let you hurt me again. I've got my eyes on you. Jesus says, watch yourself. Why? You know, we want to make sure that we're not hurt again. We pay attention to our perpetrators. But Jesus said, keep an eye on your own self. Because when we are wronged, we get angry. And when we get angry, we demand justice. But how many know that justice never heals hurt or pain? Right? When you've been wronged, justice never actually heals the wound of the hurt or the pain. Keeping our eyes on those who hurt us only leads to bitterness and Jesus says, don't let bitterness take root in your heart. Romans 12, 15 says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. When we allow the bitterness to take root, we're actually allowing it to take the place of the grace and the healing that God wants to bring to our lives. And so God said, Jesus says, watch yourselves. Even when people are sinning against you, look at your life. Now, we're catching the fullness of what Jesus is saying here. Like, he's talking in extremes, obviously, right? He's saying, you know, even, you know, when you're uh, uh, completely wrong, as wronged as possible and offended as much as possible, even in that condition, you're accountable to God for your attitude. That's what he's saying here. And it's this that elicits this response in the disciples. Well, help us, God. Right? They're listening to this and they're like, how can we live this kind of life? How can I be accountable for my way? It's impossible to live this way. And so their response to these two commands of Jesus is, Lord, increase our faith. Because I don't have enough faith to live that way right now. Right? They're looking at themselves and going, this looks like a hard life to live that you called us to, Jesus. See? We're presented with what, what discipleship would demand of them. Not only outwardly, but inwardly. They look at their lives and they sense that their faith would come up short and that their faith wouldn't be enough to live the way God's called them to. Can you relate to that today? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, if I just had more faith, then I would have less questions and doubts about God's role in my life. Have you ever thought that? Maybe you thought, if I just had more faith, then my fears wouldn't hold me back. You know, if you thought, if I just had more faith, I would be more confident and more bolder with the good news of Jesus. Or if you thought, if I just had more faith, maybe God would answer more of my prayers. Maybe you thought, if I just had more faith, I would take more risks for the cause of Christ. If I just had more faith, I would be more obedient to God's leading. We, we've all think that at times in our life. See, the disciples wanted to live lives of faith. They didn't hear this message and say, okay, God, well, we're out, because that's too much, right? They said, we want that, Jesus. We want that. And, and, and if a little faith is good, then a lot of faith must be better. So show us how to increase our faith. Now imagine their surprise at Jesus' response as we unpack this story. Verse 6 says this. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. See, the disciples are saying, Jesus, we need more faith 
If we're going to live up to the expectations and demands of ministering to others on your behalf, if we're going to live in a community of love and of grace and of forgiveness, we'll need, we need more faith for that. And, and so they said, you know, we're going to come up short on our own, so we need more of what you have. And Jesus simply replies this, nope. Don't need more. You've already got enough. Any parents in the house? How do we know that it's a constant conversation like that? Nope. You don't need more. You've got enough. I think I, my kids are asking for less and less now. They just want more expensive things. And, but I was just thinking, as they were kids, I, I don't really know what the trends are right now. I, I got to get some young families in my life to help me know what the trends are. For, for me, it was just constantly like Shopkins, Hatchimals, fidget spinners, Fortnite skins, slime. It was like this ongoing list of things that we, every time we'd go out, we need more, we need more, we need more. And then my constant reaction is like, no, you don't need more because there's always a statement that goes along with that one, right? If you're a parent, right? You don't need more. Use what you already have. How many know there's already a closet full of all that stuff, right? There's already shelves of all that stuff. You don't need more. Use what you already have, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 6, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is saying, use what you got. Even if you got the smallest amount, it's enough. It's enough. See, when the disciples were confronted with the enormity of the task, they were concerned with the quantity of their faith. They were concerned that they needed to increase it, to which Jesus' simple reply is this. Nope. Just use what you have. Use what you have. Now, a mustard seed, you probably have heard if you've been in church for any length of time. If you haven't been, there's mustard seed appears in Scripture about five times. Uh, it's used to just to pick, it's like the smallest little seed. I think there's an image of it uh, right there. It's just the tiniest of seeds. And it's used to describe by Jesus sometimes the small beginnings of the kingdom of God that start out small. Sometimes it's used uh, to talk about the spread of the church that begins in a small seed. Here it's talking about this, the amount of faith required to live out Jesus' kingdom principles. The mustard seed is the tiniest of seeds. But Jesus is saying here, even though it's tiny, it's tenacious. Even though it's humble, it's hearty. You know, he's saying right here that even though it's insignificant in appearance, it grows exponentially. Jesus is saying, just use what you got. It wasn't that Jesus didn't understand the disciples' concerns. Like he understood that there were obstacles that they'd have to overcome. But what he knew is that it was much more than just outward obstacles, but that there were inward obstacles and leaps of faith that they'd have to confront. They were going to have to confront the very core of who they were and the deep issues that they found there. And so to illustrate that, Jesus ties together with the mustard seed this idea, the idea of a mulberry tree. Uh, my, if you've ever, have you ever had a tree that you try to cut down in your yard and it just keeps like coming back every year, Right? A mulberry tree is tenacious. It grows pretty big, but it's really rooted 
into the ground. And it doesn't go really deep into the ground. It goes really wide into the ground. It grows really, the roots, just, they just go really wide and they take off. And uh, we had a tree in our, our last house that we, we cut down. It was this great big 80-foot uh, cottonwood tree. If you know what a cottonwood tree is, uh, it, it makes a mess of your yard. It drops sticky seeds all spring. And then it drops cotton that covers your yard like snow all of July. It's just, and then drops leaves everywhere all fall. It's just a mess all the time. I, I, found, I bought this house that had a cottonwood tree. I started researching cottonwood trees and I found every landscaping place I ever, I ever looked on their website and said, do not plant cottonwood trees in your house. It's terrible. And so we finally, we saved up a lot, uh, quite a bit of money to get rid of this 80-foot tree because it was a huge mess. All my neighbors on my whole street were like, can you please get rid of that tree? Like every year our air conditioners would all plug up with cotton and it was, it was just miserable every year. And they even kind of did a GoFundMe. They're like, we'll give you some money towards cutting down, <laughs> like no joke, towards cutting down that tree. So we finally cut down the tree, but then guess what? Little things started coming out of the roots like, you know, 15 feet from where the tree was, there was a root in the ground, and like these little saplings started. It was awful, awful. Jesus is saying here that even if you have this uh, faith the size of a mustard seed, you could uproot a mulberry tree and get rid of it, cast it into the sea. He's basically saying, picture what is seemingly impossible, and you can do that. Your faith can exceed your expectations uh, when you use your faith. Don't you love when something exceeds expectations, right? If you go into a movie and you're like, ah, I'm not expecting much, and it like totally is like way better than you thought it would be, right? Maybe you go for dinner and you're like, well, this, this food was better than I thought it would be. Maybe you, there's a place you went to last time, and you're like, I don't really like it, but everybody else wants to go there, and I'll give it a second try, right? And you go there and you're like, oh man, what was I thinking? This is great, right? Maybe you bought like, you know, something at the dollar store, and you're like, I'm not really expecting it to last, but it turns out to be the thing that you're like, hey, this is the, you know, the thing that I bought that I love, and, and it exceeds my expectation. Well, we see here that this is a faith that exceeds expectation. Exceeding faith. Exceeding faith, though, Jesus says, is active faith. Because the disciples were concerned about the quantity of their faith, but Jesus addresses the activity of their faith. It's important for us to know. Jesus is less concerned about the quantity of your faith than he is about the activity of your faith. See, a seed doesn't grow unless it's sown. And to grow faith, there's no shortcuts or fast tracks to increasing faith other than to use it, than to exercise it. There's no fast track to increasing faith. The Bible does talk about the gift of faith, which is a spirit-given gift that is, goes beyond, like, it's like faith that God gives us that exceeds normal faith. That does talk about that, but regular faith uh, it grows by actively using it. See, prayers for increased faith similar to prayers for increased patience, are often coming with opportunities to exercise it. When you say, God, grow my faith, God says, okay, let's do this together. I'm gonna give you opportunities to be responsive to my word. Am I doing what the word of God's already telling me to do? If you're not, then that's a good place to start, right? Uh, you don't wanna go to CrossFit if you can't even get off your couch, you know? And so Jesus is saying, let's get into the word of God and apply that to our lives first. That will start to grow our faith. And then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will prompt us to take steps of faith and leaps of faith and actions of faith. See, faith is expressed through obedience 
And it's uh, exercised through experience. Faith is expressed through obeying the words and the principles of God and is exercised through experience. And the more we exercise it, the more it grows. Use what you have and it will become what you need. I mean, we see that principle all the time in Scripture. You know, we go to the Old Testament, the widow, you know, baking without oil. i just pouring out what I have and as I pour it out, it becomes what I need. Jesus says this to the disciples, use what you have and it will grow to become what you need. You know, we often think about faith's steps and big leaps of faith when things are going wrong, right? Often we're like, you know, when things are going wrong, then I, I'm just gonna trust in God. You know, I'm just gonna take that leap of faith. But how many know sometimes that's less faith and, and more desperation, right? Sometimes that's kind of like, I didn't really have a choice other than to put my faith in God because I was at the end of my rope, right? Like, that's faith, but how many know it's also faith when things are going good, right? It's almost more faith to say, hey God, like, I know you're leading me. I'm feeling you're prompting to take a step here. Things are really good in my life right now and I don't really want to mess them up, you know? But you're leading me to take that step of faith, Right? Uh, even in my own life, Holly and I were saying that today is the one-year anniversary since we said goodbye to our old church and we took this step of faith to come to Bethel. And even that, we, we, we loved our church. We had a great church and a great city we lived in, right? We didn't, it wasn't really a reason to leave other than we felt God saying, I want you to go. I want you to go and be a part of what I'm doing at Bethel. And as we took that faith step, it wasn't because we were like, okay, we have no other choice. It was like, I don't really have any other choice because I want to follow God's leading in my life. And so I'm stepping out because I'm following where God is leading me. See, faith doesn't change the circumstances of our lives, but faith changes our lives through changing us. We often think, if I had more faith, my circumstances would change, but Jesus says, have faith in me, and I'll change you to, to rise up to whatever obstacle, whatever occasion, whatever faith step comes your way. See, faith doesn't shield us from pain or difficulty. Faith doesn't change our past or guarantee a particular faith uh, future. But faith is really a disposition with which we approach life. Faith is this disposition that we face every obstacle and every opportunity that comes our way. Exceeding faith is active faith. Exceeding faith is also submissive faith. Now, Luke 17, according to some scholars, just seems to be like a random jot notes uh, uh, that, the apostle, uh, that Luke is writing here, you know, some random sayings of Jesus. We have, we have Jesus talking here, uh, you know, not really interconnected. You know, he's talking about the, you know, the, Better to have a millstone around your neck than to you know, stop people from coming to the kingdom of God. He's talking about the mustard seed and the mulberry. And now he's going to talk about this other passage that seems totally disconnected. Luke 17, verse 7. So he's going on here. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say you are, worthy, uh, you are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. 
So remember, this is one passage, right? You're like, okay, so we have the mustard seed, and we have you know this request for more faith, and we have these random comments about servants performing their duties. Like this all seems to be like disconnected and you know disorienting. Uh, disorienting. Uh, uh, but as we look at this, Jesus is telling the story of a familiar scene that the disciples would have recognized as culturally appropriate. You know, we hear that today and it sounds harsh. You know, uh, maybe your version of the Bible that you're reading from uses the word slave instead of servant. Uh, and, and, and we look at that and we say, well, what is like a servant and a master, you know, asking a servant? to? What does all that have to do with increased faith? Now, here's what unlocked this passage for me this week. As I looked at this and I began to study, I realized that rather than captives being held against their will or the poor subjected to servitude and mistreatment, right? Those are the kind of categories that we think of uh, first. These servants were most likely debtors who had defaulted on their loan and who were indebted to the master. Culturally speaking, at this time, there was really three ways to deal with indebtedness. Three ways to deal with indebtedness. The first one was seizure of property, right? If someone, if you default on your loan, then they're going to seize your property and you're going to pay it off, right? So we're familiar with that. Uh, the second thing was enslavement or servitude. Really what it was is now I'm indebted to you, so I'm going to work it off by working for you. And in Jewish custom, they had a, minimum, a maximum of six years that you could be in, indebted to somebody to work on their behalf. Now, the third option is also an option that was available, and that is debtor's prison. That is basically, you go to prison until your debt's paid off. So luckily, or hopefully, uh, you have some family who really love you and care about you, and they're going to make some payments on your behalf. Because if they don't, this is a life sentence, right? Because if you can't pay, this is a life sentence to debtor's prison. And as we understand that, we looked at the story and we understand now that the servants in Jesus' parable, rather than feeling oppressed and rather feeling taken advantage of, are actually, or, or feeling like their master owed them anything, they recognize their indebtedness to him, that he's actually saved them from a life sentence in prison that they couldn't repay. See the lights start coming on now? Okay, I see where this story's going. See, the master had invested in them a loan they defaulted on, and they had a debt they couldn't repay, and at his own discretion, and at his generosity, and he initiated uh, and chose to reconcile with them, to give them the opportunity to uh, work towards their freedom. And because of that, they served him obediently, with joy and thanksgiving, right? Debtor's prison, or you get to work for me, right? Even if you got to eat after you make my meal, how many know you would gladly eat afterwards rather than go to prison for life, right? And so because of that, they chose to work for him obediently with joy and gladness in their heart. So Jesus is saying our faith, our faith is not rooted, uh, it's not a, an abstract concept or a philosophy. What he's trying to say here is that faith is rooted in the promises of God. Faith is rooted uh, that in the character of God. How many know that a promise from someone who lacks character is empty, right? 
Some of us have had promises that have been coming up empty all the time because a person backing up that promise doesn't have the character to back it up. But Jesus is saying, the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Jesus, God says, I've already stepped out and I've already proven my character and my trustworthiness to you. What Jesus is wanting us to understand here is that faith isn't a currency that we use to buy God's attention. If I just had more faith, then I could buy God's attention. Faith isn't a currency to buy God's attention, nor is it a, a, a currency to barter his intervention. If I just had more faith, God would notice me. If I just had more faith, God would work for me. Faith isn't any of those things. Faith is simply belief in Jesus' words and character. Faith is simply belief in Jesus' words and his character. And it's coming from this relationship of trust and love. This faith Jesus is talking about, it grows with the realization that Jesus has made an investment in you. That he'll never be in your debt, nor will you ever deserve anything from you. From him, I should say. And yet he chooses not to see us as debtors, but he invites us into this relationship to serve with him. But he goes beyond that. We see in the New Testament that Jesus doesn't just call us slaves or servants. Jesus goes even beyond that, and it says that he calls us friends. See, unlike the master described in the parable, the parables always come up short at some point because unlike the master of the parable, God actually exceeds that story. He, Jesus relates to us differently with exceeding grace. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. Since I have told you everything the Father told me, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Jesus is growing the story. The disciples are like, when you talk about living the way you're talking about, like this call of discipleship and, and like what it's gonna entail for us, when I look at myself, I just see that I'm gonna come up short. Jesus, I need more faith. Jesus says, step out with the little bit of faith you have and watch it grow. Because as you step out with that little bit of faith, you realize that it's not a bartering chip to get what you want from God. It's not trying to earn God's uh, interaction on your behalf. It's God who says in his character and promises, step out in faith and I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. This morning I want you to know that you can have exceeding faith this morning, not because you have your life all together, but because you have relationship with the one who holds the world together. That's the basis of our faith today. Whether you came in this morning and you thought, you know, I have a lot of faith. Maybe you've had a lot of opportunity to exercise faith and, and you've learned that it's not you, but it's God's faithfulness throughout the years and your faith has grown because you've had opportunity to trust him. Maybe you came in this morning and you thought, my faith is small. My, my faith is weak. I, I'm still not even quite sure how much I can trust God. I, I want you to know in this story, as Jesus unpacks it, he says, when you need faith to forgive, let me remind you how much you were forgiven. What Jesus says, when you need faith for provision, let me remind you that Jesus has already purchased your salvation. 
When you need faith for direction, remind, be reminded that Jesus has already secured your destiny. And when you feel like you're coming up short on faith, be reminded that it's not great faith, but it's a great God who makes all the difference. That's the story that Jesus was telling his disciples. That's the story that he wants you and I to know today. It's not your great faith, but it's your great God who makes all the difference. Now as the disciples came and they said, Lord, increase our faith. Jesus was basically saying to them, when you're faced with an obstacle that requires more faith than you think you have, respond with the faith you've got and watch God create a miracle. This morning, I don't know what miracle that you're praying for or looking to. Maybe there's an area of need in your life or maybe there's a relationship that you've been praying over. Maybe you have people in your life and you've just been praying for years for them to come to know Jesus and you think they're far from God. Continue to act and to step out with faith and say, Jesus, I'm gonna give you all that I have and in response, I trust you to do all that you can do. Let me pray for you. Lord, this morning I pray for my friends all across this room. Lord, those who might be here for the first time, those that have been here for a long time, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us today. Lord, that this faith we have isn't something that we conjure up. It's actually a gift from you. God, you give us the ability to put faith and trust in you. And it comes from you revealing yourself to us. God, your goodness and your character. Lord Jesus, I pray for those that have not yet seen your goodness and character today. Holy Spirit, would you open their hearts and open their ears and eyes to see your goodness, Lord. Help them as they look through scripture. Lord Jesus, to see your love and your compassion for people, to understand your love and compassion for them. Lord Jesus, that they could begin to this life, this relationship with you. That's the beginning place today, friends.